Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians 3, looking at verses 13 through 15, the second to last message in our Thessalonians series before we move on to another book. You know, last week we spent some time considering Paul's teaching on the topic of biblical work ethic and how that concept of biblical work ethic applies to us today. Now, the simple and direct teaching was this, if a man does not work, he should not eat. The more detailed concept is that a believer who is able but unwilling to support himself and his family and chooses rather to live a lifestyle of laziness and apathy while being supported by wealth earned by others is a believer who is operating outside of God's revealed will for him. As believers, God wants us to set an example for one another and maybe even more importantly, an example for the unbelieving world. An example of character, of initiative, and of sound doctrine. But what we didn't explore closely last week was digging into the consequence that Paul gave for those who refused this teaching. Recall Paul said in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Paul commands the church in light of his clear teaching for what would be now the third time that he's taught this, the first time he mentioned when he was with them in Thessalonica, the second time in First Thessalonians, and the third here in Second Thessalonians. He commands them that anybody who has, is not obeying his teaching, uh, who is walking disorderly among them, needs to be um, withdrawn from as far as fellowship is concerned. And it's the severity of this command that I'd like us to consider this evening. Uh, the topic will be primarily, we might say, church discipline. Uh, we'll, we'll mainly focus on the church discipline aspect, but this does go beyond just church discipline as in the local church, and it talks about perhaps to some degree or another the degree that you as individual believer ought to interact with believers uh, who are walking in rebellion. And so we might uh, more generally call it dealing with rebellious Christians, more specifically church discipline, as that will, will be a lot of our focus this evening. And as we pick up here, we pick up in verse 13, where the text says this, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We have, of course, jumped right into the context of last week's message, which was teaching on the church's personal and ecclesiastical um, duty of separation from those Christians who are walking disorderly by not working for a living. Much to the contrary, he tells the church to be faithful. He tells them, be not weary in well-doing, even though there are those out there who are taking advantage of others and getting money, but not working, though they are able to work. Paul states that this should not be named among believers, that we as believers are expected to do right, to be honest, to work for our living. Uh, but the idea may also be one of encouragement. It can be difficult, can it not? Struggling to labor, pinching your pennies when you see people taking advantage of others and living well. We all experience this in the welfare state. We living in this welfare state 
see people making $50,000, $80,000 a year exclusively on government money, which of course is taxpayer money, which of course is your money and my money. People that are getting everything handed to them. And again, we've talked about this. It's not that welfare is not necessary, but the welfare state is ballooning into something without accountability, without control. It's confirming people in their laziness, not helping people in a hard time quite often. We'll be careful with our stereotypes and recognize that this is not the way it is across the board. But we all know that there's a problem with that in this country. And it can make us weary in well-doing, can it not, to see people being physically and financially successful without any effort when we are working hard and perhaps not even making enough sometimes. This verse is very similar to one that Paul gave in Galatians 6 verse 9 where he said, And let us not be weary in well-doing, the same phrase, but he goes on in that passage to say this, For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Whether spiritually or physically, God desires us to be upright, to be honest, to do right in all that we do. Not because it's what's most beneficial for us materially, but because it's right. Because it's obedient. It's most beneficial for us spiritually. And Paul tells the church in Second Thessalonians, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't look at those who are not working for a living, whether they had some sort of state-sponsored system there in Thessalonica or whether it's a bunch of rich people who didn't have to work because they had family money or whatever it might have been in their area. Paul says, don't, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't look at them and just be so frustrated and, and, and give in to that method of living, to that philosophy of life. For in due season you shall reap, he said in Galatians 6, 9, if you faint not. So Paul reiterates this, the command in verse 14. He says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Paul specifically and explicitly commands here that if a man is not obeying this command about working for a living, you need to note that man and you need to withdraw your company from him, your fellowship from him. But notice that he also speaks toward the intent of the purpose of this discipline. That he may be ashamed. That he would see his actions are wrong and that he would repent from his sin. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. Paul makes one more essential point, however, in our text that we must not miss. In verse 15 he says, Yet, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Again, we see here that the point is repentance. The point is not to, to, to make enemies to, in anger, cast people out of the church and never let them back in. The point is to discipline a person, to help them see the error of their ways, to lead them unto repentance, and to count them as a wayward brother, not as an enemy. Church discipline or personal separation from another should never make a person an enemy in our eyes, but only a wayward brother. The personal and ecclesiastical separation that you observe against a brother or sister in Christ is not intended by God to be a form of His punishment through you or an extension of your anger toward them. It's supposed to be reproof and extension of your love for them. Now, just like last week, the teaching is very straightforward on this. If a man's not walking according to this command, then you exercise church discipline against him. Then you exercise personal separation from him. 
But as we explore this concept of church discipline, we need to go deeper if we're going to become committed to a process that's not only difficult, but, but oftentimes heartbreaking. And before we jump into two points concerning the biblical teaching of separation, let me just remind you that we speak, as we speak of biblical separation, we speak exclusively within the context of interaction between two born-again believers. At the risk of becoming repetitious, because I did cover this less, less, last week, let's briefly again cover 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-12. through 12. Let's read it together. Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators of this world, or with covetous or extortioners. Um, excuse me. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. For then must uh, must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but they... Them that are without God judgeth. When a man claims to be a believer and joins himself in obedience to the word of God to a body of believers, he is putting himself under the authority of God's word as it relates to biblical separation. The unbeliever, on the other hand, is not under this authority, even if he attends a church, because he is not Holy Spirit indwelled and he's not part of the body of Christ. To expect an unbeliever to live a life pleasing to God is fundamentally contrary to the spiritual makeup of an unbeliever. To use an example I gave last week, to separate from an unbeliever for their sin is like separating from water because it's wet. There's no such thing as dry water and there's no such thing as a righteous unbeliever. But when we made this point, we recognize as well that God does give the church authority to judge those who are in Christ. Far from the characteristic demand of the carnal Christian today that you would not judge them because Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not lest you be judged. The Bible, in fact, gives explicit authority to followers of Christ to judge other followers of Christ based upon the fruit of their actions. To validate their claims as a follower of Christ by the way in which they live their lives. Pastor, if that's the case, then what was Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 7? Well, let's read 7, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll consider it just briefly. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be meted to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Jesus is warning in this passage against a spirit, a spirit of hypocrisy with which we judge, as an extension of the sowing and reaping principle. Jesus is speaking against those who would judge men for their perceived shortcomings while ignoring their own sin. Condemning a spirit of self-righteousness that would look for fault and see fault in nearly everyone and everything, as long as it's not in them. We judge unrighteously all the time, don't we? And yet Jesus says, judge others with the same severity that you want to be judged yourself. A person cuts us off on the road and immediately we judge their intentions as if they did it on purpose 
and for no other reason than to spite us or to get ahead. But when we cut a person off ourselves, we hope they would understand that uh, you were in the turn lane and you, you didn't plan to turn or you honestly didn't see them or you were distracted by the kids in the back or whatever it might be. We're always so quick to excuse our actions on the basis of circumstances, but then we fail to extend that same courtesy toward those whom we judge. Jesus is not saying here, don't judge. As a matter of fact, that's obvious because he says right there at the end that then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. He's saying, rather, judge with all the facts in hand. Judge with an honest and unhypocritical heart. It has become commonplace for carnal believers to invoke this verse, often in ignorance, to keep the church fearful of calling them out on their sin. But the church has all authority to call out sin in the lives of professing believers. And so with that in mind, I would like to make two points this evening about church discipline and about biblical separation from sinning believers before we apply. Point number one is this. Church discipline is a biblical necessity of church accountability. Church discipline is a biblical necessity of church accountability. A rejection of the biblical mandate toward personal work ethic among believers is grounds for a personal and ecclesiastical spiritual separation. This means that a professing believer who is obviously capable of supporting himself and his family, but has personally chosen not to do so, and instead fills his time with his own priorities, is not deserving in any circumstance of support or of fellowship. And the idea of church discipline as an extension of uh, each individual's God-given um, and God-desired accountability toward the church must be inspected here. In order to fully appreciate what Paul is saying, we must have a foundational understanding of church discipline. See, in our age, though, this isn't even enough. Because what you find, what we will find in the Western world, is that church discipline will not, in almost every instance, properly accomplish the goals that God established church discipline to accomplish. And we'll talk about why. That is, after we teach why church discipline is a valid concept. Now, there are several passages of Scripture that speak to the existence of church discipline, but very few speak to how it's supposed to be conducted. In fact, there's only one manner passage in the Bible in regard to, church, in, in regard to any sort of uh, believer discipline, and that is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, which um, says this, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, Thou hast gained thy brother, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. In this passage we see an escalating level of accountability toward a man who is living in sin, culminating in his expulsion from fellowship among believers. Many will argue that this only applies to personal offenses between brethren, not biblical offenses such as um, uh, uh, offenses against the Bible that aren't actually uh, affecting another brother or sister in Christ. Um, this is not an invalid argument. Jesus is speaking in this direct context. Um, if a brother trespass against thee, using a singular pronoun, thee, and speaking in the context of the relationship between two followers of Christ. 
Jesus may be teaching his disciples this lesson here because just prior to this context in Matthew 18, the disciples had been debating about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But let me explain why the church has customarily extended Jesus' teaching here um, to speak of all offenses and extends it not just to uh, um, the brother-to-brother interaction, but extends it to the church. In other words, if, if a believer in the church is living in adultery, his sin may not personally be affecting me, but it is still an open sin. And um, let me explain to you why the church has customarily seen this as applicable, as an applicable circumstance for the Matthew 18 discipline idea. And, and this has indeed become a true debate, whether or not this text can apply to all believers who walk in open sin against the word of God, or whether the text only applies to uh, personal offenses against brethren, or um, we might say whether this uh, applies to church discipline, or whether we don't see church discipline in this passage, and it's only simple discipline um, between individuals, as it were. Um, And to answer this question, we must first lay down one more foundational concept. First and foremost, we must understand that God has given the local church a measure of authority over individual believers. Romans 12.5 says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Paul describes in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 the church as one body with individual members, each functioning in a unique and specific way for the benefit of the whole and directed by Jesus Christ as its head. Paul describes in Ephesians 2 the church as a building, fitly framed together as living stones built upon the foundation of the word of God, the apostles and prophets, and with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Paul teaches a system of leadership underneath ordained ministers and and, um, specifically the evangelist and the pastor teacher and that it would be aided by a select group of deacons. We see tonight that Paul teaches that men and women can be cast out of the church and received back into the church along clear and definitive lines. Now, I mentioned not long ago that all of these concepts are completely foreign to what we would call the mystical, the universal, the perspective church. The universal church cannot function as different members of one body in the manner that Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 prescribe. A body must be together if our strengths are going to make up for the weaknesses and others. I cannot trust the administration skills of a believer in Florida to make up for my lack in that area here in Minnesota. Uh, A believer in California can't trust my teaching in Minnesota to make up for his lack in that area where he ministers. The church needs men and women where we are actively filling the gaps for one another if we're going to function as an effective body for Christ. Now the same argument can be said about elders and deacons in church discipline. The Bible inherently takes for granted, it would seem, that all of these teachings will find their application at a local level in a local church. And if that is indeed the case, then the local church becomes an essential element of the believer's spiritual walk. It is not enough to be a lone ranger Christian who just lives learning from internet preachers and authors of books. That the Christian life is intended to be much more than just your submission to God. It is, in fact, intended to be about your submission to a fellowship of believers in a local church for mutual edification and for mutual accountability. And that accountability part is the part that's lacking in the church today, isn't it? I mean, these these scriptures or, or these uh, sermons are going to go online and people are going to listen to them. 
And if you're listening today, and if, if uh, internet is your, your sole source of spiritual interaction or spiritual feeding, if you don't have a local church that you're a part of, well, if you have a good local church in the area, look, you need to become a part of it. If you don't have a good church in your area, maybe you should start praying and asking the Lord if he would have you to plant one. Because the local church is a designed part of a functioning believer's life. Is this not what the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5.21? Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. As Paul teaches on what it means to be filled with the Spirit, his final thought before transitioning to an illustration of marriage uh, in order to demonstrate how Christ loves his church is that we would submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. And make no mistake, Ephesians five twenty-two to thirty-three, what we might call the quintessential essential passage in Scripture concerning the marriage relationship, um, is not intended uh, first and foremost to teach on marriage. It's intended. It's it's almost taken for granted that you know this about marriage that the wife submits to the husband and the husband loves the wife. And what it's intended to do is teach about the relationship between Christ and His church. So at the end of that teaching passage, Paul says in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church is intended to operate in a spirit of mutual submission, one to another in the fear of God. Christ is the ultimate standard of submission, but submission also to one another in the fear of God. So the first, uh, it's, it's essential to understand that God has given the local church authority but draw your minds back with me to Matthew 18 and the argument surrounding that as to whether or not the the command there of church discipline, a command to discipline a man who refuses to be corrected, applies only to personal trespasses between believers or whether it can apply to any believer who is openly and unrepentantly disobeying the clear commands of Scripture. Now, we considered earlier in the sermon Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 about brethren that are involved in some deep personal sin uh, and are unrepentant. Paul's command to the church in light of his sin, in this specific case, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man who was fornicating with his presumably mother-in-law. And Paul's command to the church in light of his sin was simply to cast him out. No statement of church discipline steps, only that he be cast out of the church. Now, the same can be said here in 2 Thessalonians 3, that uh, this is the third time this man has heard this rebuke, and Paul says if, if a man's not willing to obey, then simply put, he needs to be cast out of the church. So if we're, only going, if we're not going to apply Matthew 18 standard to men and women living in open rebellion, then the only other method, the only other commands we see in Scripture in regard to casting someone out of the church is just absolute and definitive. That there's no method at all. Just expel them from the church. And, and we, could, we could go that route. We could say, well, that's what the Lord wants. He just wants us to cast these people out of the church. But it's seemingly inconsistent with God's purpose in church discipline. See, because God, as we mentioned already, doesn't simply want these people removed. We can't simply leave the idea of church discipline at kicking people out. Church discipline is about restoration. And in fact, restoration is a command of God when anyone is taken in a sin in the church. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, 
considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That word restore literally means mend, repair, join. Paul says here that when a man falls into sin, mend him, repair him, rally around and restore him. The idea is that you're supposed to bring him back into fellowship. You're supposed to, with the Lord and, and with one another. And, and it's the man who won't listen who is to be cast out of the church, who is to be cast out of the assembly. But he's to be cast out with the hopes that when he gets cast out, he'll realize that he needs to listen and he'll start listening. At some point, a man overtaken in a personal spiritual fault who has come to terms with his sin and desires to be spiritually with, uh, healed ought to be able to find healing. And all of these teachings imply a process. You can't just... A guy walks into the door on a Sunday morning and you say, Up, oh, we found this sin in you. That means you're out. And there he goes. He's gone. That gives him no time to repent. That gives him no time to seek reconciliation. That gives no time, no opportunity, no method by which he can bring uh, his his heart in line with God's word, repent and be restored. And in fact, the only process found in scripture for disciplining men out of an assembly is given by Jesus in Matthew 18. To that end, the church has historically assumed that this process not only applies to personal trespasses between believers, but also those believers who are living, living in any unrepentant sin and how the church ought to interact with them. And this is the expectation of Second Thessalonians 3, that those believers who walk disorderly by refusing to work would be removed from personal fellowship. But here's where things get kind of difficult today. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the church today more often than not invalidates the ability of church discipline and biblical separation to function the way they are intended to do so in the Bible. And there are two reasons for this. The first reason is, is um, as we mentioned, church discipline accomplishes two purposes. The first is purity in the church, that a wayward brother would not be able to negatively influence the church by his presence and participation. But the second reason, as was mentioned in verse 15, is that the person would be ashamed and come to repentance. This problem, uh, and, and the problem here, is that this idea of him being cast out of the church ought to become so deeply impacting to his spirit that his friends are no longer fellowshipping with him, that his church has has um, rejected his fellowship, that he repents and then desires to come back into the assembly. But in the modern church today, we see two problems with this. The first problem is what we would call consumer Christianity. People have so many options today. If they're told by a Bible-believing church that they are violating the clear command or clear teaching of the Word of God and subsequently they're removed from fellowship, it's not hard for them to walk down the street and to find a church that's willing to confirm them in their sin in order to have another seat filled or another check in the offering plate. So imagine a situation with me. Maybe you don't have to imagine it. Maybe you've experienced it in a church before. A man is living in open sin in the church. He's approached by the pastor. He refuses to repent. He's approached by the pastor and deacons. He refuses to repent. He's brought before the church. And the church agrees that he's in sin. And he refuses to repent. 
And so he's cast out of the church. Now, the intent there, I mean, it should be lovingly, it should be graciously. And the intent should be that he's going to be cast out of the church and, and he's going to recognize their loss and he is going to repent and he's going to find his way um, back to the truth. But what's more likely in our age? Now, perhaps it was that he had deep friendships and and this will really get a hold of him, really tear at him as it should. But more likely, when a church disciplines an unrepentant heart, that person will simply go down the street to the next church. He'll complain about the graceless, legalistic, judgmental church down the road that would dare withhold fellowship for their sin. I mean, after all, David sinned. He was a man after God's own heart, right? After all, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, right? After all, judge not lest you be judged, right? All of those silly, trite, invalidly interpreted passages so pervasive in pseudo-Christian culture meant to allow sinning people to continue in their sin unrepentant. And so church discipline often fails to accomplish this very important goal. And it's not necessarily because the church is doing anything wrong, but simply because of the consumer culture that we find ourselves in. So while one of the major purposes of church discipline is to severely cut a man off from fellowship so that he finally understands the severity of his sin, in today's church that man will simply become offended, entitled, claim to be the victim, and the church um, won't, and he'll go to a church that won't bother his conscience. The second issue is that many people don't submit themselves to a church any longer. They don't enter into a covenant relationship. They feel no true accountability to a church. Church membership is no longer in favor, and so people remain safely outside the scope of true Christian accountability. Christians are unwilling to commit, always ready to run, and content simply to consume rather than to contribute to a local church. And may I say that our church model, perhaps more than any, is susceptible to this. Our church comprises a handful of families who have been burned out by modern church culture. Many of our church, uh, many of the people in our church have experienced um, great disappointment. And, of course, our church being a non-age segregated church, uh, made up of many homeschool families, not all, I'm thankful for those of you who are public schooled, but um, homeschool families and then certainly uh, families that believe in a non-age segregated model are, are fiercely independent. But it's not just us, is it? All around this nation are people with plenty of reasons to actually, um, to uh, not to commit to a church. And what this has done is it has left the church in the awkward position of having sinful men and women in their midst who have not taken any steps to attach themselves to the church and thus submit themselves to the authority of the church. So the church is limited in its ability to engage in discipline against them. If the church does present to them uh, their sin, the recourse is minimal because that personal investment was never made. 
They may feel it on that personal level, some people in the church withholding fellowship, not inviting them over, whatever the case may be. But many people have their own friends. They don't need church friends. Many people have their own lives. They just want to come and eat and leave. And these two factors have brought the church into a state today where the ability for church discipline to function properly is very minimal. But regardless, church discipline is still a biblical mandate. It's a God-ordained expectation of church accountability in the lives of believers. So church discipline is a biblical necessity. And it's a biblical necessity of church accountability. And that's point number one. Point number two is this. Church discipline is love-driven. And it's focused upon repentance. Not anger-driven or focused upon punishment. This is a very important point. We've considered this already from many vantage points. In verse 15, uh, we find Paul specifically state that the church should not count a wayward Christian as an enemy, but rather admonish him as a brother. We then considered in Galatians 6, one that if a man is taken in a fault, that the church ought to seek spiritual rep- uh, restoration for him. Both of these highlight the deep necessity of love and of repentance as a motivation for church's actions, not anger or punishment. The reality of the Christian life is that everything we do ought to be clothed in grace and humility. It is not beyond any one of us to fall to sin. It is not beyond any one of us to end up being the member that is in need of spiritual restoration after having been taken in a fault. It is not beyond any one of us to find ourselves spiritually ineffective through unrepentant rebellion. God has exhibited the very deepest expressions of love and grace through his personal forgiveness of our sins. If we do the same sins 70 times 7 times on the authority of God's word, God is still ready and willing to forgive and restore personal fellowship. God's grace so deeply overshadows every action and every intention that literally God's dealing with us cannot be described by any other concept than that that he has given to us nothing that we deserve and everything that we don't. You deserve the worst and God has given you the best. You deserve nothing and God has given you everything. You deserve hell and God has given you heaven. You deserve misery and God has given you joy. You deserve rejection and God has given you love. There is nothing in you that is worthy, but praise God, Christ is worthy in your place. And church discipline is not intended to rub people's sin in their face or to punish them further than their sin has already punished them. Church discipline is intended to lovingly call the unrepentant sinner back into proper fellowship with Christ and by extension with his church. In Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 and 12, the wise man Solomon writes, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. These verses become the basis for one of the most profound passages on spiritual discipline in the entire Bible found in Hebrews 12 verses 4 through 8. Beginning in verse 4 it says, Ye have not resisted unto blood striving against sin, and and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, 
whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards, and not sons. Like a father with his child, and like God with his children, so too the church with its members. That if the church does not take the steps necessary within the boundaries of its authority to call a believer out of his sin and back to Christ, then he is doing um, anything but showing them true love. And what is the authority that God has given to this church, to, to the church in order to show them their sin? Well, it's not excommunication. Can't do that. It's not the physical authority to throw people in jail. God never gave us that authority. It's separation. God simply says that when a brother is living in unrepentant sin, we as Christ's church in love, with hands always extended, graciously to receive them back, remove them from your fellowship until they choose to repent. And as we close today, I give you a final warning. As we think about discipline, on a church level, there are definitive steps. On a personal level, there are definitive steps. Both of them speak of you approaching a person, then a group, and then an assembly, a church. But be prayerfully confident in any decision to withhold fellowship from a professing believer. Biblical separation is very difficult as a topic to consider. And the extent to which we apply it should be considered very carefully. And very prayerfully. With every major spiritual decision, these things must be appropriately and carefully approached, prayerfully with counsel and with humility. But this is not an, a topic to be taken lightly. Church discipline, if done wrong, can be very, very harmful to individuals and churches. But listen, if done right, if done biblically, can be one of the greatest things in a church. May God help us to discerningly, genuinely, and righteously deal with rebellious Christians according to his word. Let's close in prayer.